chapter 21. If you're using one of the pew Bibles that looks like this one, it is on page 1117. We left off in our Act series before our Christmas services uh, took over. We left off um, with Paul saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders on the shores of Miletus. And he's about to, he's been going around this region in Europe. He's been taking up an offering, uh, gathering gifts for those who are in Jerusalem who are struggling through persecution, etc. And he's planning to go back to Jerusalem. This is his third missionary journey. He, this is, lots of people consider this to be his return leg of his journey. He's come out from Antioch in Syria gone through all this European region. He's now going to come back towards Jerusalem, but actually we've already heard that his plan is to go to Rome as well and hopefully to Spain afterwards. So it's, it's, a, it's quite a journey, a Mediterranean cruise. Uh, so Acts chapter 21, we join Paul just as he is saying goodbye to these Ephesian elders and making his way towards Jerusalem. This is what God's word says from verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and staying at the the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Amen. This is God's word. Well, let's use our imaginations for a second. 
Let's imagine you live in the United States. It is the year 1812, and you're suitably garbed. You're the father, sorry ladies, of a beautiful young daughter called Anne Hasseltine. Now one day you hear a knock at the door, and a young man called Adoniram Judson walks in, looking a little bit nervous. You know why he's nervous. He's just about to ask you for your daughter's hand in marriage. So he plucks up his courage, clears his throat, and says, I am here to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Will you consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life? Will you consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, to persecution, and perhaps even a violent death? Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly throne and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing souls, for the sake of the glory of God. What would you say? How would you respond? Yes or no? Well, I dare say that most of us want to say yes. We want to say yes because we know that there is no hope for the lost. The plight of the lost is a serious, serious thing. The commission of Christ, we know that as well. Go and make disciples of all nations. We want to say yes because we know the necessity of sacrifice on our part, of seeing the world reached for Christ. And we want to say yes because even in our minds and in our hearts, there's there's the notional idea, not just a notional idea, but an idea that, well, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. So that death is not the end. So that even if some of these things that Judson talks about come to pass, it's not the end. There is a higher throne. There is a better existence. Now we want to say yes for all those reasons, but I wonder how many of us would lean more towards a quiet, maybe unspoken. No. Really? No? Maybe? No? Why? Well, I think there may be a couple of reasons. Uh, There are two big problems, among many, I suppose, that we face in our culture at this time. Uh, One, you could say we love comfort more than we should. Uh, We've made it our ambition to plump up the pillows of our own existence. That's what our life seems to be about. Or secondly, we avoid risk more than we should. We've we've almost paralyzed ourselves into this pursuit of a risk-free life. So we protect ourselves from the emotional pain of separation from our daughter. Or we act to protect her, saying, if you think I'm going to let you take my daughter away from me so that you can put her life at risk every day, you're in dream world, Mr. Judson. One man, I think, who would have said yes to Judson was the Apostle Paul. In Acts 21, 1-16, Luke records for us this true story of an event in the life of the Apostle which really tells us that it wasn't his ambition at all in life to pursue his own comfort. To him, 
to live is Christ. And it wasn't Paul's desire to avoid risk either. To Paul, you put everything on the line for Jesus to the point that in some circumstances, even death is no deterrent. In fact, as he would say elsewhere, to die is gain. Now, some of you will recognize those words, of course. They're, from fami- uh, they're familiar to us because they're from Philippians 1.21. And I think that verse provides a helpful structure to our time in the text tonight. So we're going to do, do this in two sections, in verses 1 to 6, to live as Christ, and the rest of the, section, uh, the, rest of the chapter, the rest of the passage, uh, to die is gain. So let's look, first of all, to live as Christ. What does this text tell us? Well, the first thing in verse 1 to 6, we see Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. Um, verses 1 to 6 act almost like a travel itinerary for us. Paul has been on Expedia.com, plotted the course of his wee cruise with Jerusalem as his intended destination. If you look back to, Luke, uh, to Acts 19 verse 22, Luke tells us that. But this is no recreational trip. He's got business to attend to. As I mentioned in the introduction, he's gathering a collection for the struggling churches in Jerusalem. And this isn't a risk-free trip either. And just as the Home Office warns UK travellers about the risk of travelling to certain countries, so too Paul was warned about taking this trip, not by a government agency, but by God the Holy Spirit. If you look back over the page, at chapter 20 and verse 22, Two and 23, here's Paul addressing the Ephesian elders, and he says to them, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Now, the Home Office tells you to, tries to help you escape from countries where Safety cannot be guaranteed, and risk to life is high. But here we find the Holy Spirit compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem despite the threat of hardship and trouble and prison. Now again, if you were in Paul's situation, what would you have done there? How would you have responded in that kind of situation? If you're anything like me, I'd be more inclined to ask a few more questions in terms of the detail. Well, what kind of hardships are we talking about? Um, what are the prisons like? Are they, are they fairly sanitary? You know? Do you get to go out for a I don't know. What, what kind of things would you ask? Will I die? That's probably a question that we would want to ask. Now, as I said in the introduction, we are very much risk-averse. Uh, maybe more than we should be. We ought to be risk-averse. <laughs> but maybe we should be willing to take more risks than we currently do. Because I think at the prospect of danger, we're the kind of people who don't just stop. We're the kind of people that take steps back, aren't we? But Paul is willing to take the risk. I mean, the Spirit has warned him what awaits him in Jerusalem, but he still steps forward. He still boards that ship. That's amazing. Now, what is it that makes Paul live like that? Well, you could argue from what we've seen throughout our series and Acts so far... That in Paul's experience, actually, nowhere is safe. So what's the point of staying in one place over another? The cities weren't safe. The roads weren't safe. The Jews weren't safe. The Gentiles weren't safe. In fact, this safety, this risk-free thing, is just a mirage. But Philippians 1, 20-21 gives us greater insight into the reason why Paul boards that ship. 
Paul writes these words from Rome. In other words, this is after Acts 21. In fact, it's after Acts 28, really. And it gives us these words that were written after these events say this. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, do you know what that tells us? It tells us that Paul's ambition was not to plump up the pillow of his own existence. Paul's ambition was to live for Jesus. To exalt, magnify, and make much of Jesus in this life, that was his aim. Again, he said something similar in Acts 20, 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's what motivates Paul to get on this ship. That's what urges and compels Paul forward to live the kind of life that he is living where he refuses to plump up the pillow of his own existence and keep himself back from risk. Now, how does this text apply to us? How, do these, how does that, what we, the, the kind of things we see in verses 1 to 6, help us? Well, it's quite simple in a sense. We too need to die to self. Every... Every day, our culture attempts to disciple us into its form. To shape us into what it thinks life is all about. So think about what our culture would do to Philippians 1, 20, 21. How would our culture change that to reflect its own values? Well, we might read, to live as family. To grow old, to see your family grow, is gain. Or they might say, to live is comfort, to live in luxury, is gain. Or to live is no one telling you what to do, to be the one who tells other people what to do, is gain. But it's all lies. And every day, it's not just our culture that tends to try and disciple us into its form. Even, Even our sinful flesh Our own sinful desires can do the same. To live as me. To have fun doing what you deserve to do is gain. Or to live is to pursue what suits you best. To know no demands from others is gain. To live a little bit for Jesus is enough. Giving that little bit more than actually what it takes is gain. It's all lies. All of our ambitions, if we're not careful, will be conditioned by these things unless unless we, like Paul, make it our ambition to count all these things as worth nothing compared to living for Jesus. So the question then, if you want to dig deeper into application, is what kind of things should we do? Think about how we might change our ambitions and what we live for. I think it's fairly easy to identify the things that tempt us, where we are conditioned more towards worldliness than godliness. But when was the last time we stopped to think about our personal ambitions? When did we last measure up what we're living for alongside what Christ calls us to live for? 
Now, this is what we, the, the personal discipleship plan was all about. We drew this up at the start of our ACT series, where it asked us to think through how we are going to live our lives. What are the priorities going to be? And therefore, having thought clearly about it in terms of love, grow, serve, go, then that shapes how we live. It helps us make changes in a practical way. Like, what are your ambitions for how are you going to fuel your worship for God? How are you going to grow in Christ-likeness? In what ways are you going to use the gift that God has given you to serve his people in the life of the church? And how are you going to make disciples among a few locally or among millions globally? When was the last time we thought like that? It might be a good idea to do that now. Turn of a new year is a good time to reflect on these things again. Or what about risk? Maybe it's, a, a, maybe it's important to explore the kind of things that we're scared of. The things that would really make us, you know, we're kind of, we have the desire to get on that boat like Paul is, but actually something's holding us back. What is that? And do we have a rational fear in that respect? What are we desperate to avoid? Is it emotional pain? Like the kind that comes when friends reject us or when family disown us? Maybe it's physical pain. Well, of course, that's, we all want to avoid that. That's perfectly understandable. But if anything would get in the way of us obeying Christ and spreading his glorious fame in Edinburgh and to all nations, if anything would get in the way of that, we must be willing at least to surrender that. Because that's all that matters in the end. What is it that matters in eternity? Should be one of the questions that conditions how we live. It's demanding, it's tough, isn't it? I struggle with this. I have a tendency to reduce Christ's claim on my life and say things like, to live is my version of Christ. That's very different. Paul didn't write that. He wrote, to live is Christ. That's why he gets on the boat. That's why he's taking this trip to Jerusalem despite the warning of his friends in Tyre. In fact, that's why in verses 7 to 16, he expresses explicitly he's willing to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. In fact, to Paul, to die is gain. And this is the second point from verses 7 to 16. What do we see in this passage? Well, in verses 7 to 11, first of all, you see that the Holy Spirit again warns Paul about what awaits him in Jerusalem. Having traveled on from Tyre, he and his companions sailed on, hugging the coast of Syria, sailing a day at a time, time until they reached Caesarea. And if you look with me at verse 10, here's what we read while they were there. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand them over to the Gentiles. Now, we've met this guy, Agabus, before. In Acts 11, he predicted a famine in Jerusalem, and that happened. And here, he doesn't just verbalize this prophecy. So he says, he basically says, thus says the Lord, in the way that Old Testament prophets would. But he doesn't just verbalize the prophecy, he acts it out. Again, like Old Testament prophets would. You often see this as you read through the Old Testament prophets. Um, They would try and dramatize their message, even for a a number of years to put the words that they are speaking from God into pictures in order to drum home the message. 
For example, Isaiah warned the kings of Israel that the friends, their buddies down in Egypt, that they thought, these guys, let's buddy up with Egypt. They're going to provide a little bit of security for us here. But Isaiah tried to tell them that they were going to be, the Egyptians, their security, were going to be tripped off into captivity by the Assyrians, naked. So he gave them a visual aid. He, he warned them of this verbally, and then he walked around naked and barefoot for three years to remind them of that prophecy and what it would look like. God bless the new covenant. That's what I say. Agabus does the same. Paul is going to be bound, and that means, there's no doubt what that means to Paul. Trial. In fact, the rest of the book of Acts is going to be just a sequence of Paul giving defense at trial. In chapters 21 to 28, you basically have about two and a half, three years condensed into just a few chapters where Paul is defending himself. But never, ever, ever retreating. Now, in verse 12, in response to Agabus's prophecy, Paul's friends plead with him not to go. The interesting thing in this is you see the word we in here. In other words, Luke, who's writing this, his traveling, Paul's traveling companions are so affected by the impact of this prophecy. In other words, this is the clearest testimony yet as to what exactly is going to happen to Paul. Paul said earlier, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I have no idea what's going to happen to me there. Agabus says, I know. This is what's going to happen to you there. And now all of Paul's friends in verse 12, just as the Tyrenians did in verse 4, they plead with Paul not to go. Now you might have done the same. Uh, if someone we love was walking into certain imprisonment and persecution, we might try to dissuade them. You know, maybe we would say that to Judson. Judson, listen, you're going to go out to India. He actually didn't stay there very long. He went on to Burma and did a phenomenal work. But we might say, actually, it's quite risky. How many people actually make, the, make it past the journey? You know, or how many people die of dysentery within the first three months of arriving there? Or maybe, you know, there's plenty of people in New Hampshire that could do with hearing the gospel. Why don't you, I wonder if his, Paul's friends start to say that. Oh, Paul, Jerusalem. Do you, know, the, do you know, what about that Ethiopian guy that Philip saw? You know, maybe we should go down and hook up with him. Who knows what the Lord could do in Africa? You know, we hear things like that. Maybe we might say things like that. Well, what would Paul do? Well, Paul's response is in verses 13 to 14, and it is remarkable. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart, he says. Why are you breaking my heart? What does that mean? He's, he's, he's upset by their pleas. But I think what he's saying is, please don't weaken my resolve with your emotional pleading. There's no way that this was an easy decision for Paul to put his life in the line. Sometimes we assume that Paul has superhuman strength. But if you read Paul's letters, especially 2 Corinthians, Paul tells you just how weak he can be and he tells you who supplies the strength that he needs to help him do the very thing that he's called to do. He's crystal clear in what he's called to do. He's crystal clear in the one who helps him. It's Jesus. And Paul says, I am ready. I'm ready 
I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready. Now that's not, come on death, come on Satan, come on Jews, take your best shot. He's not some crazed kamikaze on a suicide mission. This is a calm resignation that if, I'm ready, if this should end in death, Paul's ready to face it. Now in this day and age, when we talk about things like this, it's like martyrdom. Uh, We need a little bit of qualification because in recent years, Islamic terrorists have blown themselves up and called themselves martyrs and advocated the fact that they're going to go to paradise afterwards, so that's fine. Which Paul would argue, as he does through the rest of Acts, about being on trial for the resurrection of the dead and preaching the resurrection of the dead. He's confident in that, sure of it. And he's happy, he's ready to lay down his life in that respect. But what is the difference then between a Christian martyr and those who call themselves martyrs from Islamic State, for example? Well, the most in, there's lots, but the most important difference is this. The, Christian's martyr, the Christian martyr's life is taken by the people he seeks to love and save. He lays down his life in love without a fight. The Islamic terrorist takes his own life in order to destroy the people around him. And ultimately it's a selfish sacrifice. It's very different. But the Apostle Paul, as he looks at Agabus sitting in front of him, bound, he says, I'm ready. I'm ready. If this ends in death, I'm ready. And no one could deter him. Verse 14, look with me. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, Lord's will be done. Well, that's not, oh, well, there's no convincing this guy. It's not a, some resignation to someone's stubbornness. It's a solemn recognition that a follower of Jesus is willing to follow him all the way to death. Like Judson. And in words reminiscent even of the Garden of Gethsemane, his companions concludes, the Lord's will be done. It's his will. We don't know what's in store for you, Paul. We don't know if this being bound will end in death, although they've got a hunch. The Lord's will be done. So what is it that makes a Christian walk on into trouble and hardship like this? Not just back then, but now. What is it that makes a Christian want to give up their job as a doctor or as a nurse or as a teacher or in any occupation, to surrender that and come before the church and say, I really want to serve the Lord God in reaching a people group that has not yet been reached. And I know fine and well that by doing so, the reason that my life will be in danger. And the reason these people are generally unreached is because it's dangerous to be there and be a Christian. I'll be ostracized. It might take weeks, it might take months, it might take years. But I'm probably facing some kind of imprisonment. But I will not be able to keep quiet for these people need to hear about Jesus. What is it that makes a Christian like that walk on into trouble and hardship like that? Well, John Piper explains it in one sentence. He says... It's the belief that God himself 
is better than what life can give to you now and better than what life could take from you later. Again, solemn words, but true. It's just another way of saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. So in the here and now, God is gracious enough to give us the joy of being employed in reaping the harvest of righteousness and bringing the lost souls in this city, in this nation, in this world into the fold. There is nothing more valuable than a Christian like those of us here today who believe recognizing this and shaping our lives around these very commands, this very commission, being compelled by love to lay down our lives, to, lay, to use whatever resources the Lord has given to us and recognize that, it's our, that we're not owners but stewards. These are not our things to have and to keep and to coddle but to use for his glory, for the building up of his church, and for reaching out to those who are not yet a part of that church. As for death, well, death is gain because of what it brings to a Christian. Christians long to depart this world and be with Christ. To no longer struggle with suffering and sin. To no longer feel pain or shame. It's a thrilling prospect and we say, come Lord Jesus. But seeing our Savior meeting the Lord God is the most wonderful prize of all. To be in his presence is everything. To see him. Like it's unimaginable, but can you imagine it? The one who rescued you, the one who transferred you from death to life, who despite our obscenity and sin rescues us I cannot wait have you ever imagined what you do I don't know what I would do I kind of feel like I'm going to burst into tears or I'm going to just jump for joy or I'm going to fall at his feet or I'm going to and in, in just in view of his reverence and holiness or I'm going to give him the biggest man hug ever it's just phenomenal this is Jesus we're talking about here our Lord And the Christian joys that we experience. I love these things. Every expression of love that we share as a body of Christ together is like an expression of Christ's love towards us, isn't it? There are so many joys that we know as Christians in this life and that we struggle with sin and suffering and temptation and the pain that we experience. There are joys, great joys. But even the greatest of these joys that we know are like Costco samples of the wonders to come. And for that, we cannot wait. Now, to non-Christians, of course, death is very different. Death inspires terror in so many people. John Stott writes about Ronald Dworkin, an American legal philosopher who wrote, Death is the central horror. Death's central horror is oblivion. The terrifying absolute of the absence of light. Death is dominion not because it is the, end, the start of something, but because it is the end of everything. Well, if Dworkin was scared of that, imagine how fearful he might be of hell. For the reality for the non-Christian is that death is not the end of everything. It is the beginning of an eternity 
away from the presence of God. And that's described by Jesus himself by using terms and phrases like weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where people say it's better to die under an avalanche of jagged rocks than to face that. That's graphic language. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you must understand that's one of the reasons why people like us are desperate to tell you. One of the reasons is because we love you. It'd be quite content in some ways to not say anything and just enjoy the joys of Christianity. But we love you and long for you to know what we know. But on the other hand, we are desperate for you to avoid the things that we've been saved from so that you too might be saved from them. And the way that you're saved from that is by trusting in God's grace and his goodness. You repent of your sin. You turn away from the things. You rebellion against him. And you trust in his blood. You look to Jesus and think, praise God, I believe. And you put your faith in him. For death holds no horrors then for a Christian. For Paul, for us, though the process of dying is messy, but Christ has destroyed death and is himself the first fruits of our resurrection. And when we see that he has been raised, we find the assurance that we too will be raised and that's what makes the difference. We too will be ready. Ready to be missionaries. Ready to go to unreached people groups in countries that are angry about the gospel that we share. Who would kill anyone who was baptized for believing the gospel we share and think that by doing so they'd be doing God a favor. We'd be ready to even speak out locally among our own friends. Ready to respond graciously to the ill treatment or rejection or slander that we experience. Willing to suffer any of it. And not avoid it. For the sake of Jesus Christ. To know him. And the fellowship of his sufferings. That he suffered for us. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of grace. The final question is, is it worth it? That's a question I think I would love to ask Mr. Hasseltine in heaven. At the beginning, I told you how Judson asked Mr. Hasseltine for his daughter's hand in marriage to depart from her early next spring and see her no more I didn't tell you how he responded left it hanging creates a tension I'm giving away my secrets with tears streaming down his cheeks and his heart torn into a million pieces he said yes he said yes He sent his daughter off with Judson to live a missionary life. Was it worth it? It wasn't easy for the newly married Judsons whatsoever. They faced many, many a heartache. They faced rejection by British missionary groups from the off. Something to do with what was going on back in America between British people and American people. Something like that. But in India, they were forced to move from there to Burma. 
And when they arrived there, they shared the Lord's Supper together, just the two of them, because there were no other Christians whatsoever there to share it with them. Within months of moving, they lost nearly every penny of support. It took seven years of language work before Judson felt that he was even able to deliver his first sermon and share the gospel in Burmese. Even then, the message was met with indifference for years. After 12 years of evangelism, they saw only 18 conversions. Two of his children, of his three children, died before they reached the age of two. He spent two years in prison because he was suspected of being a foreign spy. And only a few months after his release, his wife Anne, who had waited so patiently for him and endured so much in that time in the absence of her husband, died. She never did see much fruit. Was it worth it? Well, the only way to answer that question is to measure the difference their sacrifice made in eternity. When they began their mission to Burma, they set a goal of translating the Bible and starting a church of 100 members before they died. When Judson died, he left a legacy of a full Bible in Burmese and an English Burmese dictionary complete and published. And when they had gone, I mentioned they wanted to start one church of 100 members. Well, when Judson died, there were 100 churches and over 8,000 believers. Was it worth it? You ask Mr. Judson in eternity, he'll give you the answer. Yes, it was worth it. Leaving family behind, missionary unrest, ill health, the indifference of unbelievers that you're trying to reach, two years in prison, the death of his wife, the death of his children, yes, it was worth it. Jesus is worth it. Living for him is worth it. You know, Judson actually died on a boat halfway between Burma and America. He wasn't with anybody that he loved when he died. His coffin slipped off that ship, given a, a, a burial at sea. But before he died, he cried out in concern for the lost in this world, and he cried out what is, in my view, a challenge to me, and a challenge to all Christians everywhere when we consider the extent of those who do not know the gospel wherever we are. He cried out, one of his last sentences, how few there are who die so hard. In other words, how few there are who say to live as Christ, to die as gain. We have a choice to make. We can go along with the spirit of this age and choose to live seeking worldly pleasures, acquiring worldly possessions, pursuing worldly ambitions, or we can decide that Jesus is worth more than this. And he's called us to a much greater purpose than anything this world can offer. And we need not be averse to the risk. I need your help to live like this. You need my help. We need one another's help. Bottom line, we must live like this. And by his grace, though we are weak, like the Apostle Paul, we can know that God supplies the power. Let's bow our heads and take a moment to respond.